Please join me in prayer. Lord, as we look at the history and as we look at your word and study and see how you reveal yourself and how you've engaged your people, Israel, may we grasp the circumstances, may we grasp the context, but may we also see how true you are the yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and how these things still are relevant to us today. God, your word is living, and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. We ask that you would pierce our hearts, that you would make it clearer. We ask that, God, that you would help the Holy Spirit to be the teacher. And may my words be your words. May you give me your truth, and may everything I say, God, be clear, that it would glorify you, and it would edify the body. Lord, these things we pray in your son's name, the living word, amen. Um, it's funny, when we get to Judges, there's this uh, editorial in the beginning about generations. And we have about five generations in our church. I'm not sure if you are aware of that. I wrote a paper on it last year that our church is very unique, that we have the great generation and fictal, a centurion. <laughs> we have the, the, the silent generation. We have the boomers. We have the Gen X, the greatest of all generations, obviously. And then we have the millennials. Those are the ones born between 1981 and today. And in this one church, you have five generations. So talk about like so many different ways to cook a pot pie. You know, you got five generations with different perspectives about money, about, about child rearing. My generation was, you get that stick out, you know. Um, I remember my generation, my brother was sick and he couldn't go to school. So I cried to my dad, I don't want to go to school either. He said, okay, don't. And he made me hold up a box over my head for like an hour. And so today you do that and your kids will call the cops on you. So it's, it's a weird culture. And uh, when I came to America yesterday, last week, I shared that I wanted to be so assimilated to American culture. And on top of that, I really wanted to run away from my parents' generation. Uh, just a little funny note, though. We lived in an apartment complex where we played kickball. And... We're playing kickball with all the neighborhood kids, like 10 of us. I was in maybe third grade. And then my mom comes out with a shovel. So I, my friends are like, oh, dude, what's your mom doing? And she starts digging a hole. And she brings out a jar of kimchi. And she's burying kimchi in front of our, in our whole apartment complex, like deep into the ground. And my friends were saying, like, is your mom burying a bomb? What did, what did, it, was so, it was so embarrassing It was to me at the time because I wanted to be so American. I wanted to be so hip. And I recognize that, you know, that looking back now, that's who we are, and that's my mom's generation, and I wish I could go back in time and not have yelled at her and say, you know, you embarrassed me, and you, you humiliated me in front of my friends. And I look back now, and I actually treasure this culture, treasure this generation. And I think when generations pass on that culture and values to the next generation, there's something beautiful. There's something exquisite. What happens when that generation is unable to pass down, not just the traditions, but values? Then you have what we have in Judges chapter 2. See, at the beginning of Judges, what we read is Joshua is dead. He lived a full life, 110 years. And then the scripture says, after Joshua died, it's verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that's a nice way of saying, after this whole generation passed away, Another generation grew up 
And I wish it said, and they took over. I wish it said the generation that rose up carried on the faith that Joshua and his people carried. But you read it, and I read it. What does it say? Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So you have two things that happen. This new generation grew up, they didn't know God. They might have known about God, but what is implying here? You know, you could, anybody know Elvis Presley in here? Oh, come on, raise your hand. You all know Elvis Presley. Don't make me do the dance. Now, did anybody, if, if, if some of you did, I'll be, I'll be amazed. I wanna, did anybody ever talk to Elvis Presley personally and hang out with him? Oh, darn it. I wish there was at least one. So you, you see the difference. We could know about Elvis Presley, or you could know Elvis Presley. You had a generation that did not know either. So what happened to them? Right away, right after that, it says, the very next verse, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. This generational disconnect led to them turning astray to other gods and to the cultures of this land. What we don't read here is they started marrying a foreign women. Now, that's not a statement on racism. That was a, not a statement of interracial marriage. It was a statement that they just started marrying and assimilating to say, I like your God. Let's start worshiping different gods. And the one true God who rescued them from Egypt, who guided them through conquest, the God that revealed himself through pillars of cloud and fire at night, the new generation said, who? Who's that? And that's the beginning of this transition. Um, Oswald Chambers, he wrote this. He's a, he's a, um, his devotions changed my life, and some of our young adults are reading it. But he writes, whenever we put theology or a plan of salvation or any line of explanation before a man's personal relationship to God, in other words, if you put any thought, ideas, virtues, anything like that, even if it's biblical, before a relationship with God, listen to what he says, we depart from the Bible line because religion in the Bible is not faith in the rule of God, but faith in the God who rules. Did you catch that? Whenever we make church and Christianity about rules and a lifestyle before saying, I know God, I know Jesus, I see him face to face. I yearn for his voice. I follow his ways. I want to build that relationship. I want to pass this awesome God to my children. If we do anything but that, then we make it into a bunch of rules. So they don't give you a lot of detail in Judges, but the children, they defected. There was a generational disconnect, and after this whole generation, they turned to other gods. Um, we see it in our culture. Uh, some of, I, I, you know, I became my parents. I'm, I'm just over 40 now, and I realize, you know, I start saying those, when I was your age, I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> when I was your age, or when I was, and I, I, I keep hearing my parents' voice in me, and I realize, wow, there is this generational, I, I can't even relate to the youth anymore. Nathan and these guys, Pia, they do such a great job. Um, we have some teachers. I see Marissa, she does a great job connecting with her students in her school, and I realize, I don't know this generation. <laughs> I, I became one of those old people, you know, this, the, the Korean, you know, were this old disconnected guy. And my biggest fear is, that's okay, I just want 
to connect with them so that I could show them that God is still so real and big in their lives as he is in our lives. So when you have this generational disconnect, you have this waywardness, you have this straying. So Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Let me keep reading here. And serve the Baals. They forsook God. In other words, they said, God, okay, you know what? I could worship other things. There's more important things in my life that I could seek after. And if you notice, we don't have teenagers running after worshiping Asherah poles or Baals. But there is this tension of, you know, that's your God, Mom. That's your God, Dad. You know, for me, I don't really need religion. So statistics have shown the millennials are growing with, with a group called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Have you heard of the nuns? So when Pew Research did a study, they said, what religion do you affiliate yourself with? A third of the millennials said none. 60s and over, only one out of 10 said we have no affiliation. Millennials, 30%, I don't believe in any religion. I don't have a preference. So we see that happening today. So they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherah. So therefore, what happened? God got angry. And I'm going to talk about that because one of the things I wrote in here was, why does God get so angry? I mean, seriously, can't he just be nice? So we're going to talk about that. But questions for us at this moment in this part, I wanted to ask us to reflect on. I don't have an answer. Do our children and grandchildren know the Lord personally? Do they know why they have to worship, not that they have to worship? Did you hear the difference? There's a difference between saying, you go to church because that's what we do. That's how I grew up. And it worked. My generation, my dad said, you have a 102 fever? Oh, poor baby. Let's go to church. (laughs) So I grew up in that generation where you have a fever, you're throwing up. Okay, bring an extra bag. We're going to church. It worked, partly. This generation, it doesn't work. You don't go, you go to church, you pray, because that's what we do. They're smart. These millennial generation, they don't just take that. I think the boomer and the great generation, that's They were great at that. That's what we do. This generation does not. So we have to teach them not what to do, but before the what, why do we have to worship God? Why is God important? Why do we choose to live this way when there's other religions out there? Parents, grandparents, we have to do that homework. We have to give an answer for that. Why is Jesus the right God out of everyone else? Aren't they all valid? You have to learn and read and study about that. So cultural Christianity says go sing, pray, and go to church and pay tithes. Relationship with God is, God, how do you infect every part of my being so that I could connect with you, hear you, live for you? So it's a very different model from knowing about the Lord to knowing the Lord. It's very different from we have to do this to we get to do this. So in our home, um, it, some of you think pastor's life is pretty nice because, you know, you're teaching your kids. Can I share with you an insight? Kids look at me with more scrutiny because they know I speak in front of the church. So they're going to be judging me with a higher standard of, are you really living this out, Dad? 
I could see it in Michelle. And so it's all the more prevalent that I have to help them to see not the what we do, but why. Not the how to do it, but what's the reason. So this generation of disconnect that, that led to Israel's demise and this cycle uh, really contributed. Uh, just on the side, I wanted to give us three things. Just, this is a helpful thing. Some of you parents maybe, what can I do um, to help the why? I just, this is from a youth pastor in Redeemer Church in Utica, New York. I thought this was very helpful. Three things. He says, talk, pray, and do. Talk, pray, and do. Talk. Spend 15 minutes a day listening and talking with, not at, your kids. That's pretty cool, right? Don't sit them down and say, hey, how did you do school? Let me tell you how to do school. <laughs> but he says, 15 minutes, just listen to them. Two, pray. At least twice a week, spend some meaningful time praying together with your kids. Twice a, twice a week, that's it. Hey, kids, how can I pray for you? What are you wrestling with? What can mommy and daddy do to pray for you? And then this one, I know a lot of us do, this one's easier, do. Once a month, create a family night where your family can spend quality time together. I know some of you guys are doing a great job with that. But this is one way that we could say God is important and he matters in our lives, and this is how we do it. So let's go on. So after Israel had this disconnect, the next generation, they wandered off, and for the next couple hundred years, they had this cycle of judges coming in because Israel would go wayward, they would sin, they would be oppressed, they would cry out, they would repent, and then God would deliver. And six times this happened in the book of Judges. And one of the most famous stories, which I'm not going to go into, but you know Samson. You guys know Samson, the strongest man. He killed like a couple hundred men with a jaw of a donkey. I don't know what that looks like, what that means. Remember he had the long hair, and then, you know, he fell in love with Delilah. Delilah said, hey, Samson, what's your secret? Remember all that stuff? And then they cut his hair, and then he lost his power. But one last strength God gave him. He defeated the Philistines by wrecking their whole Colosseum and killing hundreds of them. Very romantic story. <laughs> but that's one of six stories that have this cycle that Israel continues to turn away from God. They get oppressed because God says, you want it, you could have it. By the way, that's the scariest thing God could ever say to you. You could have what you want. Romans chapter 1 says, because they desire simple things, God turned them over to their desires. That is a scary thing, by the way. God letting you have what you want fully, sinfully. And then they got oppressed, and then they repented, and then God sent a judge. And it's funny because it says the Lord fought against Israel. Judges chapter 2, verse 12. They aroused the Lord's anger. Judges chapter 2, verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. So I had this question. Did you ever ask this question? Raise your hand if you ask this question. Please. You ever thought, man, God gets really angry. Come, come on. Just, all you liars. I thought it was the three of you guys. You guys are, Jason, I'm, I'm very righteous. I don't know about you, you sinner. I never get. Um, so why does God get so angry? And I thought this is connected to this, and I wanted to discuss this. Isn't it true you get angry because true love always has a cost? Let me give an example. You have a child. You love your child. Your child gets out of your car, runs across the street without looking, and a car zooms by. 
What do you do? I bet you a million dollars you don't go, Ethan, silly, that was a car. I don't know any parent that did that. They go, Ethan, get over here. That's a car. You can't just run across the street like that. And then if your son said, Dad, why are you getting so angry? You need to calm down. Your blood pressure, and I, they won't do that. But you get that anger because true love always has this cost. God loves Israel. Exodus 6, verse 7, this is what God said, remember? I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the yoke of the Egyptians. When you love something, you get angry because a thing you loved has either been threatened or has been defiled. If this church was spray-painted, graffitied, stained glass, shattered, none of you would come in and not feel emotion of anger and fear. Is that true? Because you love, you love this church, you love the identity, you love this community, and you've been violated. Some of you, you heard the, pain, the saying, you know, mama bear. You've heard that saying? What, what's a mama bear? You threaten my child, the mama bear, no matter how friendly you are, she turns into this like <laughs> maleficent. And why? Because you love your child. The thing that you love has been threatened. See, anger itself is not bad. That's why Paul says, in your anger, do not sin, right? Anger itself is a normal reaction when you love something and you embrace it and you say, I cherish this. And God got angry because he was an immature juvenile God. No, because he loves his people who he redeemed and sacrificed and delivered. So he's battling with this. So Tim Keller, uh, he's one of my favorite pastors. He says this, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despite of, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even they themselves, you get angry. Did you catch that? Even when they're hurting themselves, you anger comes out because you love them and you don't want them to destroy themselves. So Psalm 145, verse 17 to 20, it says, God's wrath flows from his love and delights in his creation. He is angry at evil and injustice because it is destroying its peace and integrity. So here's the hypocrisy of us when we say, if you've ever said, God, why do you get so angry? I don't like this angry God. I'm going to call you offend me, including me, if we've ever said that, we are the biggest hypocrites because we do the very same thing out of love. So to question God who is love, to say you shouldn't get angry, we're actually undermining the reality very in us. You know, I wrote this down and I couldn't think of a great example other than this, but I would say I dare you, I triple dog dare you to go to a spouse who's been betrayed by her husband or his wife and say to him, what's the big deal? Why are you getting so angry? I triple dog dare you. You know, get over it. It's just, it's just a person. When they're hurting, when they're angry, and you see them and you say to them, you would, none of you in this room would say to them, get over it. Why are you angry? Because implied in that situation is there was love there was devotion and that love has led to a pain 
Now tie that with God. How much does God love you? More than the Milky Way. He loves you more than the Grand Canyon. He loves you more than the stars out there. And when we turn to other gods and we say, God, what's the big deal? You're essentially saying to God, you don't really love us anyway. (laughs) Because if you did know God's love for you, you would understand that true love has cost and anger comes from the violation of that love. So Joel chapter 2 says this, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And God wants Israel to return to him and that's why he's angry. That how can you settle for counterfeit when the one that loves you and is willing to die for you is standing right in front of you and the very best thing for you you reject. I will say to you, God's anger is justified. Amen? Because of his love for you and I. So, we're almost there. So the cycle repeats for 300 years. Cycle of sin. People turning away to idol and worshiping foreign gods. They look like the culture rather than being different and set apart from the culture. And then when the judge dies, the people return to their sin over and over again. And then it leads to oppression. God lets them go in. By the way, he lets that oppression come in so that when they see their waywardness, they would cry out and realize, God, we need you. So Mesopotamia for 80 years, Moabites for 18 years, Canaanites for 20 years oppression, Midianites for 7, Ammonites for 18 years, Philistines for 40 years. And then people cried out, God, help us. We're so sorry. We are really sorry this time. And then every time God delivers them with a judge, Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. So I want to end with this two thoughts. As we kind of, as you read Judges, please read story chapter 8 or Judges, the whole book. It's so exciting. And I wanted to leave us with two thoughts. One is this. There's one thing we can count on about humanity. We are prone to sin. Can we just shake our head? If you, if you don't, then you... What did we just sing? Come that down. The verse 3. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to what? Leave the God I love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. In our human nature, no matter how religious you think you are, how good of a Christian, in the very heart of your heart, you're always desiring to have it your way, not God's way. My way, not God's way. So to cover it up with religion is so silly because our hearts, until we get glorified in Christ when we die and with a new body, we are going to run away from God. So one thing is true, Israel, no matter how many times God saved them, some of you read this, boy, Israel's really dumb. They keep making the same mistakes over and over again. It's because the nature of sin in you and I is too great, and God does it. But here's the second part. That's human. What does it say about God? Judges is showing us that throughout history, God is always in control. In other words, God is working to send a deliverer despite our sins. The story of Judges is that no matter how much we've strayed, God is always going to be prepared to deliver us. And there is no one that could deliver us from sin other than God, 
That is why we call it grace. See, can I just speak on something? A lot of us think if I fix my life, if I do this, I'll get over it. Your issue is not behavior. Our issues is the heart of sin. And there's only one person that could deliver our hearts of sin. And Judges is pointing us to the fact that you need a deliverer, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Judges is showing us people can't live religious life on their own. You can't live it on our own. We can't live it on our own. But there is a God who sends a deliverer, and that is the good news. And the way this cycle of sin breaks in your life and my life is not to simply have a wake-up call. Uh, we're talking about this at session or of, at the story group. A lot of us, do you guys ever hear of BuzzFeed? Some of you guys? It's like this news blog where they give you all these lists, you know, lists of funniest movies ever made, lists of ways that you could cook a pot roast or anything. And I realize our culture today likes 10 ways to look beautiful. I've mastered one. I'm just kidding. But, you know, they, they have like eight ways to help your marriage grow. Uh, you know, three ways to enjoy your job. And there's so many people. People are looking for what? What are they saying? People are looking for what? Are they looking for transformation? They're looking for techniques. And what the Bible shows us, and if you are really honest with yourself before God, it's not a lack of techniques we need. It's a new heart that needs to be reformed and renewed. And there's only one person that does that, and that's God. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it doesn't say he is a better person <laughs> or she is a better person. It says he is a, say this with me, new creation. Say what? New creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And wherever you are, no matter where we are in our life, the hope of judges is this. God is already working to deliver you. Amen? And you don't even know it. The cool thing is his deliverance of you comes in different forms, but is ultimately from his architecture. Ehud was a left-handed man. Samson was a womanizer. And God used these imperfect people to deliver them, to show it's not them, but it's him. So can we have this hope today that no matter how sinful we are, that God is working to deliver us. We just need to simply say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here I am, God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, how fitting that this message speaks to us in the season of Lent as we reflect on our sinful ways, as we reflect on this heart of ours that we try to cover over with good behavior or, or just trying to become better with our own powers. But Lord God, we need you. We need you to master our hearts. We need you to lord over it. We need to surrender these things to you, to say, God, you rule over us as you ruled over your people of the old. And God, these sinful natures that I see in us, it can't be simply rectified by our techniques, but God, we need you to vanquish it, and you have done that in Christ. 
So God, our prayer to you is would you allow us to be humble enough to let you reign over us every day, that we may not wander, that we may not seek our comforts and our preferences, but we may live to please you and to glorify you. May we be a church that is not just merely looking at the outward appearances, but may we see hearts transformed and renewed, the old and the young. And God, make us into a community that is a testament that there is a deliverer and he's working not just merely in our midst, but in this world. And may we see that transformation happen with the people we contact. So be glorified, be patient with us, and keep drawing us closer to you. And in your anger, help us to see not just merely the wrath, but to see your love for us as we desire you and you alone. Lord, thank you. We pray these things. And as we close, we sing the prayer that your son Jesus taught us with the Lord's Prayer. So once a month, we gather together at this table, and the significance of this table is this one name alone, his name is Jesus, who is the great deliverer that we all need once and for all. We don't have judges today because there has been one judge who has been delivered once and for all for our, all our sins, and we gather together. And what's relieving about this is that when you come with this weight of sin, this is exactly for you. When you come with this weight of, man, maybe I'm a hypocrite, this is for you. When you come victims of sin, 
on you. You say, Lord, how do I find justice? We come to this table. Because on that cross, all effects of sin and sin nature was crucified on Jesus Christ. Someone made a scandalous statement that when Jesus died on the cross, in technicality, he had the most sin out of anyone else that ever lived in this earth because he was carrying all your sins and my sins. And so we come to this table with mercy and grace, with joy and gladness and relief to say, what a great God you are. So children, when we, when we take this, we're saying, Jesus, your 